What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another brand new episode of This Week in Sports. I'm your host, as always, The Pody. It is Friday, August 13th, 2021. I did not do a podcast last week as I had done, what, two uh, the previous week, or maybe I did one earlier in the week with the MLB trade deadline. I think I did that on like a Tuesday or so. So I'm back. Um, episode 144, I believe this is now. And um, not too, too much going on. Some preseason football is underway, if you can believe it already. We had the um, amazing Field of Dreams game. Well, amazing if you're a White Sox fan. I'll get to that in just a second. Um, another reason I didn't do the podcast last week is I was at the Jets green and white scrimmage on Saturday with a few of my friends. So I will recap that and uh, talk a little bit about that later on when I get to the football. But we are going to uh, jump right in and talk yesterday's um, Field of Dreams game. It was um, an actually like eerie uh, feeling. Uh, watching it, you got goosebumps. First time they're playing ever right across from the um, location where the house was, the field that they um, built for the actual movie Field of Dreams 30 years ago with Kevin Costner there in Dyersville, um, Iowa. I believe it was like 8,000 fans were allowed in for this game. It's a small venue and tickets started around $1,400. I heard they went all the way up to at least like $3,000 and mostly there were celebrities there. So procuring yourself a ticket to this event um, was probably nearly impossible. I saw um, Sean McDermott, head coach of Creighton, who grew up actually like six miles from that field, um, was there with his father. So that was kind of cool. Uh, yeah, there was just celebrities uh, galore there. Um, you know, of course we had Joe Buck, John Smoltz um, announcing the game. And then you had Kevin Costner there. He uh, stepped into the booth for a few innings to chat with them. He gave a speech beforehand. But I'm going to play a cool clip. They used um, James Earl Jones for this one. So take a listen. This was sort of an intro to, to the game. There is gold dust in this magical meadow, made perfect by a game we love. See if you can hit my curve. One of baseball's most memorable nights awaits. Yeah, yeah, you can hit the curveball. Imagine, forever we will say, the New York Yankees once performed on this farmland. The White Sox. Travel from Chicago to play here. Daddy, there's a man up there in your world. You wouldn't believe how many guys wanted to play here. The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. I'm James Earl Jones. Welcome to Iowa and our field of dreams. So 
So, yeah, pretty cool moment there. Um, I think that was really well done. They had an intro as well with Kevin Costner. That one was a little bit longer. And then a really funny one that they did, which I'm not going to play it, I don't think, but um, it's probably the one I should have went with, but I just thought that one kind of gave me the chills with James Earl Jones. And it's really funny. Um, when I was in, what was it, maybe eighth grade? Yeah, I think it was eighth grade. Um, we went on a trip to um, local state theater and we went there to watch um, a play of Animal Farm, you know, George Orwell. And lo and behold, guess who was there it was James Earl Jones. And he came out and gave a speech or something. I, I honestly think it was some sort of like he was give, presenting like an advertisement or ad or something for like some sort of Verizon thing or other um, that he was in partnership with. But yeah, he came out on stage, gave a cool little speech. And I was like, oh, my God. That's James Earl Jones, even though I had never seen Star Wars. And up until um, this day, at 29 years of age, I've still only ever seen the first Star Wars movie, the very first, you know, 70s one with um, Harrison Ford and um, Mark Hamill and all them. And I want to say, what was that, like episode four, I think. So, um, yeah, I do have to get to those as well. But... Um, I did not, honestly, going into this game, didn't have great high expectations for the Yankees, although I know they're tied best record in baseball post-All-Star break. Um, I know they've been riding high. A lot of one-run, two-run games coming down to the wire that they've been winning, and they just beat uh just took two out of three from KC. They're coming off, you know, having played 17 straight games in 17 straight days leading up to yesterday's game or yesterday was the 17th game in 17 days. I can't quite remember um what they said about that, but um they've won 9 out of 10 series, but here's the problem. You're facing a really good White Sox team. In fact, in my opinion, the White Sox are the best team in the American League. Right now, hands down, they have they're getting healthy. They got Aloy Jimenez back. Um, they just got Luis Robert back, their young center fielder. So they are pretty stacked all around. Although no Tony Larusa for this game and no um Carlos Rodon, which thank God he didn't play in this game because the ball was flying out um into the cornfields which I'll get to more on that later. But um, yeah, so you had Lance Lynn starting. I think he owns the lowest DRA in baseball. I know definitely in the um, American League. And you had Miguel Cairo, acting manager for the White Sox, which truthfully, I didn't even realize Miguel Cairo was a part of the White Sox um, coaching staff. That's really cool. Of course, Miguel Cairo had a long storied career Um Middle infielder could really play all over. Utility guy played, I think, 17 seasons. Played with, at, I, I want to say it was over 10 different teams. He played with the Yankees for a season or two. He played for Tony La Russa um, for a number of years as well. So it makes sense that he's part of that coaching staff there. So, um, but the way analytics go and whatnot, you know, um, not having your manager isn't going to make too much of a difference. And then on the flip side of that, you have the Yankees and they were, you know, going with Andrew Heaney, excuse me, Andrew Heaney, um, who they acquired at the deadline from the Angels, who so far in his uh, Yankees career in a couple of starts, he has been known to give up the long ball. So I was not um, 
I didn't have high expectations. I wasn't betting this game. And um, the reason being is I bet the Yankees the previous two days. I threw 50 bucks on them two days ago, lost. They That was one of the worst games I've seen all year. They had four errors. And then coming back on Wednesday afternoon matinee, um, looking to win the series, take two out of three. And the Yankees put up three in the first inning, and they won the game quite easily although they did commit three more errors there. So I doubled down, put 100 on the Yankees, so I won some... I won my money back and some. So I just had a weird feeling going into yesterday's game that they weren't going to win. Um, and then you start things off in the first inning. It was mostly White Sox. Um, you know, uh, Jose Abreu hits the home run with two outs, which barely got over the fence into the corn into the corn stalks there, but that gives them the one nothing lead. Then the Yankees, they did take a 3-1 lead when uh, Aaron Judge homered in the top half of the third inning, but that was short-lived because Aloy Jimenez hit a three-run shot in the bottom half of the third inning, um, and so they were pretty much up at that point, and then you had uh, Sebi Savala um, or Sebi Zavala hit another two-run homer, um, which made it seven to three. Then Brett Gardner hit a home run, making it seven four. So then we're gonna pick this one up in the ninth inning, and that would be when um, Tyler Wade, who I've always been on, um, I don't think he's a great player, but he's been put into an everyday type uh, of role with, of course, the Glaber injury as well as the Gio Urshela injuries. Um, so he's been playing every day. He's been at third base. He's been at shortstop. And he had two more hits in this game, including a bunt single. But uh, in the ninth inning, he leads things off. First pitch off Liam Hendricks. He lines a single to center field. And then you have DJ LeMahieu strikeout. Brett Gardner strikes out. So back-to-back -back strikeouts. And then Aaron Judge Aaron came Judge. up to the plate. And that's when things got interesting. Okay, so Judge hits the two-run shot. It's his second home run of the game, makes it a one-run game, all with two outs in the ninth. And then, of course, you have um, Joey Gallo come up next. He walks, so Liam Hendricks a little shaken up, uh, one of the best closers in the American League, if not the best, um, one of the best in Major League Baseball. Um, if you did not know, Liam Hendricks is from Australia and he's a weird dude. Um, I recently saw an interview with him where he said every night before bed, he drinks a cup of coffee to calm him down. It's something him and his father used to do. It's just, it, 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 hey, weird dude. You know, athletes can be a little bit weird, but Gallo walks, it brings up Stanton next and here's what Stanton did. So Stanton takes the first pitch. I It was a hanging breaking ball like a slider, and it was right down the pipe. And Stanton, who was, who was 0 for 4 to that point, very aggressive on the first pitch, and he gets it just over the left field wall. And um, the Yankees now take a one-run lead. Holy crap, it was incredible. Um, Luke Voigt then struck out, so you had the... Um, 
nine one two batters coming up for uh no eight nine one coming up for the White Sox in the bottom half of the ninth inning. And I knew this game was anything but over because of course you have um Araldis Chapman who's out right now with an injury. Um, so you had Zach Britton coming on and between Chapman and Britton, these guys can get a little wild and they could walk runners uh, or batters. And, you know, I didn't want things to get interesting because Britton just pitched the day before in KC and things got a little interesting with an error in the ninth inning and some runners on base. So I was a little nervous with, um, Zach Britton coming in and Britton comes in and immediately he throws first pitch strike and he's peppering strikes. And I'm like, all right, this is a good sign. He gets a ground ball from the first batter. Okay. Um, pinch hitter, Danny Mendick gets a ground ball to first base. And I'm like, all right, we're good. We're okay. We got the first one. That's important. Now we have the nine batter coming up in Sebi Zavala, who, like I said earlier, did hit a two run homer, but I'm still feeling good. You know, he's kind of a scrub. He's, you know, just been called up this year. He's got only four home runs. Three of them came in one game. And then of course the one in this game. So I'm like, all right, this is okay. This is not bad. All right. Uh, first pitch strike, I think. He starts fouling some balls off. He hits one down the third baseline like a little dribbler, and Tyler Wade fields it and throws him out. But he, it was just foul, and that's when I should have known um, we were in trouble um, because it took Zavala a long time to get back to the plate after he ran it out, and it threw off Britain's rhythm just slightly. You see him start to throw some balls, and then what do you know, 3-2 pitch, he walks Sebi Zavala. And that's when I get worried because you have Tim Anderson coming up, and what what worried me here is that the Yankees consistently this season have blown leads in the ninth inning. Um, I don't know what it is about this season. We can't hold a lead in the eighth or ninth inning, and it, it's a struggle. So whenever you have the home team last licks, right, they 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 take the lead, the game's over, they win, they walk it off. So it's always nerve-wracking when you're the road team. And to bring up the winning run at the plate it's never a good sign as you could see in the bottom or the top half of the ninth when he walked gallo that was not good you brought the go-ahead run to the plate and stanton made him pay and gave the yankees a lead well britain walk gives a one-out walk to sebi zavala and in comes tim anderson and tim anderson who earlier in the game, his first at bat swung at the first pitch, and it was an. They made note of it. Did John Smoltz and uh, Joe Buck that Tim Anderson came into the game with 36 first pitch hits, which leads Major League Baseball. Okay, so Tim Anderson comes to the plate. Zach Britton takes the mound, and what do you know happens Anderson. on the first pitch? Yeah, and so uh, Tim Anderson walks it off, and Tim Anderson, I'm not going to say he's a cocky guy, but he hit the ball and knew it was gone immediately and had this swagger strut to it, and it was like nails to a chalkboard because I was so angry that 
we just allowed this to happen. And John Smoltz, who it doesn't take a rocket scientist to guess, said that this should be an interesting at bat because Tim Anderson likes the ball down. He's a good low ball hitter. And what does Zach Britton throw? A sinker ball looking for ground ground outs. And he threw one right down the middle. It was like a get me over pitch. And it was, you know, too much of the plate and Anderson crushed it into the cornfields in right and walked it off. And what I do have to say about this game is that not only should I have known things weren't meant to be beforehand when you had Zach Britton, Chad Green, and Lucas Letke um, get lost in the corn maze, that is no joke, um, as Fox reported, that literally before the game, a couple of these guys, pitchers on the Yankees, tried, they wanted to go through the cornfield and go look at the, um, you know, the historic um, uh, field from Field of Dreams and the house that, you know, was in the movie. So they go over there and then there's this giant corn maze and they get lost in it. And then Zach Burton goes off on his own trying to find his way. And Chad Green has to call him up and be like, bro, where are you? Like, come back to us. And they finally found their way. So yeah, they were lost from the time they got there. And that's what happens when, um, you know, it's just not meant to be. And what I just continue to preach, and I'll tell all you young kids the same thing. There were, I want to say, like, there were a lot of walks in this game. I think there was, there was close to um, double digit walks in this game. Uh, let me, I'm going to double check those numbers because I was looking at it earlier and I was flabbergasted because there was three walks. The first three walks of the game all scored and a bunch of them were with two outs. So you've got to, you cannot walk the first batter of an inning and you cannot walk batters with two outs and nobody on. It is crucial if you want to be successful in this game. Those are two absolutely monstrous um, things that you just cannot allow if you if you are a pitcher and you play baseball. Okay, softball, same thing. You just can't do it. Um, so let me see. The Yankees walked two, three, five, six times, and the White Sox walked, yeah, five times. So there were 11 walks in this game, and I calculated it out before. Six of them came around to score. Six of them. And like I said, a few of them were with two outs. Um, it, it It's just, it's killer. You cannot do it. Like I said, Hendricks did it in the top half of the ninth, and then Britain did it in the bottom half. You cannot walk guys. And I conti I'm continuously scratching my head even today, knowing, like, wondering these guys have all this technology and the and every team boasts about their analytics department and yada 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 and they pride themselves on that so why did tim anderson get a first pitch sinker right down the middle over the heart of the plate when you know this guy is super aggressive you should have thrown him a first pitch slider tried to backdoor it towards his or throw it towards his back foot and get him to swing because he was going up there. He said it after the game in the post-game interview, Tim Anderson, that he was going up there and he knew he was looking for a pitch out over the plate and he was going to be aggressive because let's face it, these guys nowadays, they're not looking to tie the game. He was looking to walk it off with one swing of the bat and that's what happened. And he gets the pitch and he ends it. And it felt like a gut punch. It didn't have the same ramifications, but honest to goodness, it literally felt like game six back in the 2019 ALCS when 
DJ LeMahieu tied the game Reach with an pitch. unbelievable two-run homer. Right. Take a listen. Back at the wall, this ball is gone for a home run. And this game is tied. LeMahieu at ninth inning, game six hero for the Yankees. It's 4-4. And right field it is. Didn't love the 2-2 pitch. Had to come in there in the 3-2 pitch. Then in the bottom half, you're going to have Altuve obviously make history. We remember it very well. Fans stayed back. Let Springer have a crack at it, and he just couldn't get there. Right behind Springer and his 13 postseason home runs is Jose Altuve with his 12. And he loves hitting here at home in Houston. Yeah, so we all remember that. This is what this, that is exactly what this felt like. Of course, it wasn't to go to the World Series or whatever, but, um, and what's even more important is what did Chapman do? He walked George Springer, the batter before Jose Altuve, and then Altuve, whether they were cheating or not, okay, Altuve gets the pitch and he tattoos it for a two-run homer and sends the Astros to the World Series, although they did lose to the Nationals, but still, um, it was gut-wrenching, and this felt very similar to that because you have the super high of all highs in taking the lead in the ninth inning and then blowing it in the bottom half, and I said afterwards that's one of those games where I would wholeheartedly much rather just have gone down one, two, three in the ninth and lose seven to four than do what they did. I mean, it's nice to show the resilience. It's nice to see, you know, judge getting things going, you know, two home runs in this game. That's always nice. And Stan, even though he was over four, he didn't really strike out much in this game. Couple ground outs to short. He was kind of on the ball and he, you know, we, we could use him getting going as well, but, uh, just such a gut punch. And like I said, the Yankees, for whatever reason, I don't understand what it is, but for whatever reason, the Yankees keep blowing leads in the eighth and ninth innings. And yesterday was no different. It was their sixth loss, sixth this season after leading in the ninth inning or later. That is the most such losses shocker in the American League and is also the most in a season for the Yankees since 1997. So they got to get their act together and they've got to, you know, clean things up. And it hurts even more knowing that the Red Sox lost again yesterday and the Yanks had a chance to get within one game of that second wild card spot. Although all hope is not lost because Clory Kluber began a rehab assignment yesterday in Somerset. Um, although that went horribly wrong. One in the third innings, five earned runs, only two hits, four walks. So that stat line is just horrific. So hopefully he has no setbacks and he could start to ramp things up. And then, of course, Luis Severino should be coming back soon, near future, whatever. Um, Jordan Montgomery as well, who's been on the COVID list. They interviewed Garrett Cole um, during yesterday's game, who jokingly said that the Yankees should have their own variant named after them because I don't know any other team that's been hit as hard as the Yankees in terms of COVID-related positive tests. 
Although Garrett Cole did say that the first few days he was not asymptomatic. He felt like he had a bad flu, um, lost some weight, couldn't do much. So he's hopefully going to be back next week. Um, Anthony Rizzo is now on, on the COVID list, but the Yankees basically have an entire team that's either injured or on the COVID list. It, it, it's ridiculous. Sanchez is still out. You've got Urshela who had a minor setback with his hamstring. Um, of course, Glaber just went on the IL for that thumb injury sliding into second. Um, you know, just Guys all around. Aaron Hicks been out all year. He's not coming back. Clint Frazier might be coming back soon. You know, it's just, it's all over the place. So um, it's been nice that they've been able to plug guys in and win games, but I was not expecting much yesterday, and that's why it was kind of such a gut punch. But uh, Field of Dreams game, it was a mighty success, and the Yankees and White Sox will pick things up uh, tomorrow as they finish out their three games set in Chi-Town. Okay, let's move on from baseball and let's talk a little NBA Summer League. Rockets Jalen Green, after three games, he was injured and he will not be back for their final game on Sunday. Of course, Green, the number two pick in this year's draft, averaging 20.3 points through three games. But like I said, he exited um, yesterday's or Thursday's game. Yeah, yesterday's game against the Raptors and did not return. Rockets coach Steven Silas said it's just uh, precautionary. And obviously they have a lot invested in this kid. So clearly they're not going to play him in the final game and risk further injury because it's only summer league and it does not matter. Oh, and um, if you... We're not paying attention. The Dallas Mavericks and Luka Doncic agreed on an extension worth um, over $200 million. No real surprise there, as he is one of the best young players in the league. And this just got me thinking. There is a new book out, um, an autobiography on Giannis. Um, and it started to make the rounds on Twitter. There is a There's a part in there an excerpt in there about Jason Kidd when he was the coach of the Milwaukee Bucks and they had lost the game on December 23rd and they played like crap. So they're in the locker room and of course the next day is Christmas Eve and Jason Kidd asks Zaza Pachulia whether he thinks they should practice tomorrow or not and he's putting him on the spot and Zaza's like, I know we played bad, but he's like, come on coach, tomorrow is Christmas. You know, a lot of us have flights that we've booked to go see our families. And basically he was having none of it, Jason Kidd. And he said, I'll see you tomorrow at 9 a.m. So they came in for practice. They did all this running and he really pushed them hard. And Larry Sanders, he made them all get in the pool and do weights. And Larry Sanders couldn't even swim. And he basically had a whole body convulsion and had to go excuse himself and then go to the um, uh, hospital. I think he excused himself and Jason Kidd was like, don't worry, we'll wait for you before we continue. And then he just literally took himself to the hospital, was there overnight or for a couple days. And basically, um, that was the end of his NBA career. So um, they're trying to basically throw Jason Kidd under the bus in this book, and it makes him look bad, sure. But I will defend Jason Kidd and say, if Jason Kidd is your coach, you better damn well be sure to listen to him because Jason Kidd is a Hall of Fame point guard, one of the best players of all time. And if he says something, if he does something, it's for good merit and it's for good reason. And let's be real. You guys get paid millions and millions and millions of dollars 
you can work on Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve is barely even a holiday. Everybody works on Christmas Eve just about, okay? Um, Christmas is the real holiday. So you could have still gotten your flights for, you know, the end of that day and gone home to see your families. It's not that big of a deal. Um, I think players are soft these days. You can hardly coach them. And all Jason Kidd was doing was coaching them up like he would, you know, any college coach would do or like he was coached up. And so that, you know, made the rounds on Twitter. And of course, people were saying, oh, you won't, you know, this comes out now. But uh, where was the Dallas Mavericks to do their background check and to vet Jason Kidd? Because, of course, Jason Kidd is now the new head coach of the Mavericks. And they said, is Jason Kidd going to do this to Luka Doncic? Is is, is he going to make him run and all this? And I'll say this. Luka is still a young player. Yes, he's very good. Um, but listen, if you're Jason Kidd, you have to treat Luka Doncic like every other player on that team. And I'm sure Luka would agree. Um, this team is not that good. They're Luka and everybody else. Okay, the Porzingis... Uh, experiment is pretty much over. He hasn't showed up at all in, in Dallas. Um, you know, you got Tim Hardaway Jr. He's a good player. You got some other guys that are decent players, Brunson and and guys that you could mix in here and there. But they need to get better overall. And if that means Jason Kidd pushing them through three-hour practices where they're running sprints and, and, you know, they're swimming in a pool to lose some weight because, um, you know, no fat shaming here, but Luka Doncic, I, I believe he could, you know, he, he could, uh, lose a few pounds and he'd be okay. Um, you know, so listen, I'm partial to this because, and I'm biased because Jason Kidd is my favorite player of all time. Yes. His tenure with the Brooklyn Nets ended disastrously. Um, but still he's the greatest player in franchise history and he's my favorite player. That's who I watched growing up. So let's not throw shade on Jason Kidd. Like he's the only one doing this. And, and really all he was doing was demanding that his players work hard. Oh my God. It is a privilege to play a sport professionally and make millions of dollars. Okay. You get to play your sport. You don't got to. Okay. I saw a, um, clip from Alabama football, Ernie Johnson of TNT fame. Okay. Sportscaster. He gave a speech at Alabama. He has a get to job, not a got to a got to job is basically something that you have to do. It's not something you're passionate about. It's not something that you want to do, but you have to put food on the table. So you go to this, you know, boring, meaningless job every day. No, that's not what he has. And that's not what these athletes have. And that's what he was preaching. They have a get to job. They are privileged with the ability to get up each and every day and go to their job and do something that they want to do and that they love. And it is a privilege. Okay. So yeah, quit crying and and do what you're told. Okay, so let's talk a little football. If you care at all about the NFL preseason, it is officially underway. Last week, apparently, we had the Hall of Fame game and, of course, the Hall of Fame induction ceremonies, which which was um, pretty cool. Drew Pearson, okay, he got inducted finally of Cowboys fame. Um, ooh, I'm getting a little bit of um, a cramp in my back here. 
Um, but yeah, Drew Pearson got inducted. If you get a chance, go watch that speech, Peyton Manning. But Drew Pearson, um, he grew up down the block from my dad in Edison, New Jersey, and um, he shouted them out, the Edison Missiles and Jets, um, for playing there. And then, of course, he moved over to South River where he played with the uh, great Joe Theismann. Imagine that tandem of Joe Theismann and Drew Pearson on the same team. Just scary. Um, but anyway, the preseason started yesterday. I can't get this weird sensation. I'm losing feeling in my lower back here. But um, anyway, you had Mac Jones making his debut for the Patriots. That's going to be a bit of an interesting battle in New England between Cam Newton, who was, let's face it, not very good last year. He also wasn't 100% healthy, but uh, surprisingly re-signed on a three-year deal with the Patriots. And of course, Mac Jones, who the Pats took with the 15th overall pick, I believe, in the first round. Um, he made his debut yesterday. And, you know, he wasn't bad. Um, it's it's going to be interesting because he reminds me a lot of Tom Brady, tall in stature, um, had a great, great career at um, Alabama. Another guy who started at the bottom and literally worked his way to the top. He was like the fourth stringer when he got to Alabama. And between guys leaving and injuries and you name it, he worked his tail off and became the starting quarterback. And if it wasn't for Devontae Smith, you know, Mac Jones would have won the Heisman Trophy. That's how good he was at Alabama. But uh, he looks pretty good in his debut last night against the, who did they play? Washington. He was 13 of 19. He did complete his first pass for a first down, which was which is always a nice feeling, I'm sure, for uh, young players making their debuts. He finished with 87 yards, no touchdowns, I believe. he did. I did see him drop a dime in the corner of the end zone. The receiver got his fingertips on it but couldn't hold it, and it was a great throw. But uh, the talk of this game was not Cam Newton. It was not Mac Jones. It was rookie running back Ramondre Stevenson, who ran 10 times for 127 yards and two touchdowns. Stevenson was a fourth-round pick out of Oklahoma, and many believe um, the writing's on the wall for Sonny Michelle. He could be on his way out of New England with the acquisition of Stevenson. Um, then you had, in the other game, you had the Steelers playing against the Ravens. Dwayne Haskins played the majority of that game, going 16 of 22 for 161 yards and a touchdown. Those numbers sound good, but I watched one highlight where Dwayne Haskins, he's in the pocket for a little while. He rolled out left. He has a guy wide open in front of him, and he completely misses him. It was absolutely atrocious, to be honest. But, um, you know, they took a flyer on the former first-round pick, the Steelers did, and more than likely, he will slot in as the number two quarterback behind Big Ben. Let's face it, you know, the Mason Rudolph experiment, that's another one um, that doesn't look like it's going anywhere. The Steelers invested a third-round pick in Rudolph back in 2018, expecting him to possibly be the heir apparent to Big Ben. But what you see a lot of times with these Big 12 quarterbacks is that they run this, you know, fully automated shotgun system where they air it out and a lot of guys are wide open and they put up a lot of points because the big 12 defenses are not very good and you know through a couple of seasons 
He's been okay. He's been able to go in there for some spot starts, but he's not really what they're looking for. So they're hoping that they can um, groom Dwayne Haskins into maybe the next, um, you know, big starter for them for years to come. So we'll see how that plays out. But, you know, they didn't risk much taking a flyer on a one-year deal with Haskins. Okay, the Steelers also made news earlier in the week when they traded for Jaguars linebacker Joe Schobert. Not really sure what the Jags are doing here. Schobert, one of the better interior linebackers in the NFL. He was the leading tackler in the NFL back in 2017 when he was named to a Pro Bowl when he had 144 tackles. He did, of course, spend his first four seasons with the Browns before cashing in on that 2017 season, signing a five-year, $53.75 million deal with the Jags ahead of the 2020 season. So I don't really know. This might be a salary dump. Um, Who knows? But he did compile 141 tackles, three picks, and two and a half sacks last year. So um, it's a really nice addition for the Steelers. It's like, really, the Steelers need um, more great linebackers. Um, So, yeah. um, And, of course, Schobert is just 27 years old, so he's got a lot left to give in the tank. Um, We've also got the Jets and Giants tomorrow at 730. That one, of course, I will be intrigued to watch. Um, Like I said, I went to the Jets green and white scrimmage last weekend, which was an absolute disaster. So I'm really hoping to see some improvement from the entire Jets offense. You know, Zach Wilson threw two picks in, in this scrimmage, including a pick six, and then I think one in the end zone. Um, so uh, it was not a good look at all for the entire Jets offense, whether it was first team or second team, whether that's an indictment on the Jets offense or high praise on the Jets defense. I think it was the first one because the offense was just the the problem I have here is I knew it's a new regime. I knew, I know there's going to be some growing pains, but this looked eerily similar to Adam Gase's offense. I mean, it was horrible and they didn't try to air the ball out. Really. It was a lot of short dumps, dinks and dunks. And I get that's part of the, the, the offense that they're going to be running the West coast scheme, um, with LaFleur and whatnot, but they, they got to do something. Um, and then of course, yesterday, Standout rookie wide receiver second round pick Elijah Moore gets hurt in practice in one-on-one drills of all things with with a slight quad injury. I hope that the MRI doesn't reveal too much, but he will in all likelihood not play at all tomorrow. Elijah Moore, by the way, has been the talk of camp and even around the league. Um, Former teammate AJ Brown of the Titans, who's just a beast of a receiver and one of turning into one of the best playmakers in this league said that um, Elijah Moore basically taught him everything he knows and he would stake all of his uh, game checks on Elijah Moore winning offensive rookie of the year. And I saw OBJ had high praise for, for him as well. So it's very, it's very intriguing. Um, But like most Jets rookie wide receivers, they always seem to get hurt. We had Devin Smith a few years back. That was a disaster. We got rid of him. He's out of the league. We had um, last year, of course, Denzel Mims got hurt, was out most of the season, played in, what, a few games here and there, and now you're hearing rumblings that 
that Denzel Mims doesn't fit into this uh, scheme, this offense. You know, he he's like fourth string or third string. He barely played in that uh, intra-squad scrimmage that I was at. Um, he was, And when he did, he was with the second team or third team. Um, so that's, that is highly um, concerning news there. Um, and then there's rumblings that maybe the Jets are looking to move him in a trade. I, listen, I don't know what's going on, but I did read just yesterday. This is a little bit more encouraging that um, Denzel Mims um, said he had food poisoning back in the spring. So a few months back, he ate some salmon, apparently, suffered some seafood poisoning from the salmon that he ate, and he lost around 20 pounds because of it. Um, apparently, it was so severe that he was vomiting for two weeks straight and required antibiotics because of an intestinal infection. He said he'll never eat salmon again, and only with the Jets does this happen because where where do you think he ate the salmon, you might ask? It was confirmed by someone in the Jets organization that, yes, the salmon was consumed in the Jets cafeteria. Oh, my God. I'd say I'm surprised, but it's the Jets, so I'm really not all that surprised. So we'll see if that's part of the reason why Denzel Mims has kind of been MIA in Jets camp and whether they start ramping him up and getting him back out there because with his size um, and the way people talked about him last year, he he should be somebody that gets significant burn on this offense and he should be a focal point, so I don't quite understand it. Okay, with football being back, you had earlier this week, I think it was on Tuesday, the arrival of Hard Knocks. So with Hard Knocks, you you uh, always get some, some cool um, scenes from different teams. Of course, the Jets started Hard Knocks way back in, what, 09, 010 with Rex Ryan. But this is funny because here is a clip from the first episode of Hard Knocks. And it is Ezekiel Elliott getting off to a bit of a rough start as he arrives to training camp. Take a listen. All right, can I find building 11? I'm going the wrong way. Long ass walk. I'm good. I'm just tired. Is it this one right here? Ah! I'm gonna cry. Oh, am I up there? There's no way. My key didn't work. Oh, man. I hope this is it right here. I walked right past it. So, yeah, Ezekiel Elliott, You obviously listening to it, you're not going to get the visual, but Ezekiel Elliott arrives to training camp and they're storing them, you know, putting them up in these condos or whatever. And he's got to find building 11 to find his room. And he's walking around this whole place with his two bags um, in each hand. And he's getting tired. He's having to stop, put the bags down. And he circles it. And he thinks he's maybe upstairs. And finally, he finds building 11 and where his room is. And he walked right past it. Um, he went to one room. The key didn't work. He was obviously at the wrong room. So it was kind of funny there. Um, but there's some other cool moments from the first episode. Um, probably going to watch it either later today or tomorrow in preparation for the second episode. But it's the Dallas Cowboys. So um, it, it should be a fun one for sure. 
All right, I want to get back to baseball for just a second. On Wednesday, Corbin Burns became the second pitcher this season. Um, This is so sad, but he became the second pitcher this season to um, strike out 10 straight batters. Of course, Aaron Nola did it two months ago. Before that, 50 years ago, was the last time it happened when old Tom Terrific himself, Tom Seaver, struck out the final 10 batters of the game, mind you. Um, But take a listen, Corbin Burns. This was against the Chicago Cubs. Tyrell Taylor was a swing at a miss. Really getting him here and keeping him at this level. Another nasty curveball gets a strikeout. Narvaez able to secure it at first. It can unlock some great performance on the field. But you can see the wind starting to kick up. A swing at a miss. Tonight, you sing a lot. That's a swing at a miss. Got him. How about Corbin Burns? Six consecutive strikeouts. Nine or 30, or you're younger. We're evaluating players right now. There it, it is. is. A strikeout number seven for Burns. 2 2 pitch. And it is eight straight strikeout of Miami. 2 2 pitch and a swing at a miss. It is nine in a row. Strike away, got a chance at 10 in a row. 0-2 pitch, and a swing, and a miss. There it is. Corbin Burns. Yeah, so 10 straight strikeouts for Corbin Burns. Um, Just ridiculous. This is what's broken about baseball. This should not happen. And there's a reason this has now been done twice this season after a 50-year hiatus, and it's not a good reason. Okay, look, I've said this before, and I'm going to break it down as simply as possible, as I possibly can. Baseball is going in a very bad direction right now, and Rob Manfred thinks he's so smart and that he can outmaneuver us and that he can convince the average fan that baseball is so great. Let's take yesterday's Field of Dreams game, for example. There were eight home runs hit in that game. Eight of them. That is not the norm in today's baseball. Okay? So here's what I believe Rob Manfred did. I believe because this was televised on Fox and eyeballs were all over it. I am not surprised, I would not be surprised in the slightest, and I have a sneaking suspicion that Rob Manfred threw in those juiced baseballs from a year ago, the ones that were flying out of the park in the shortened season, and possibly even in 2019. Because why? Well, because you don't want a boring every player strikes out or there's a one or two home runs hit in the game and it's 2 nothing final or 2-1. to one. No, he wanted the fireworks. He wanted the drama. He wanted the excitement. Baseball came out of this Field of Dreams game smelling like roses because there was entertainment, there were comebacks, and there was a walk-off. You couldn't have scripted a better ending to this game, which is why I truly believe they had, and when I say they, I mean Rob Manfred, had at least some hand in this, whether it be the juiced baseballs or some other element to this thing. But don't be fooled because this is not the norm today. No, 
Today's baseball is as boring as ever. You have legendary players such as Pete Rose, you name it, guys that say that they can't even watch the game right now because of what it is. It is sad, okay? It is very sad. You have, pit, you know, you have pitchers able to go out there and get swings and misses on 94-mile-an-hour fastballs right down the middle. When I was at the Jets scrimmage uh, last Saturday, my, I'm with two friends of mine that are Phillies, uh, excuse me, Mets fans. So we pulled the game up on our phone because I see the Mets were rallying in the ninth. Um, I know VR had hit a home run or something like that, and they had the tying run up at the plate, whatever the case was. So we turn it on on our phones. We're watching the game. And we catch the ninth inning, right? Pete Alonso and J.D. Davis, I watch both of them strike out on fastball after fastball after fastball. And those fastballs were topping out at 94 and 95 miles an hour. And the pitcher was Ian Kennedy. And all he did was just keep peppering them with fastballs. And they just kept swinging and missing every time to end the game. That should not happen. I mean, how is that possible? You're not being blown away by Aroldis Chapman 101 mile an hour fastballs. You know, it, it, it's Ian Kennedy throwing straight laced 94 and they swung and missed every single time. Okay, that's partly what's wrong with baseball. And then what else is wrong? And I'm ragging on the Mets just because this is the most glaring example. I'll get to the Yankees in a second. Okay, last week, the Mets were swept by the Phillies in this series. On last Friday... When Marcus Stroman was pitching, he came up with the bases loaded and nobody out. And he stood there with the bat on his shoulder, strike one, strike two, strike three. Didn't swing the bat once, goes down looking. Next batter up, Jeff, McDeal, Jeff McNeil grounds into the old 4-6-3 double play. And inning over, Mets don't score a run. People were fuming. Why the hell didn't Stroman swing the bat? Yada, yada, yada. After the game, Luis Rojas addresses it, says he told Stroman not to swing the bat because they didn't want him to do exactly what Jeff McNeil ended up doing anyway. Only difference is, ladies and gentlemen, if Marcus Stroman would have hit into the double play with no outs, the Mets would have scored a run. This is what's wrong with baseball. It's a very simple game at its core. You pitch, you hit, and you try to score more runs than the other team. Yes, of course, you know, I'm embellishing a little bit here. It's a lot more that goes into it than that. But the point is, it's really not that difficult of a game. And these managers and these front offices are trying so hard to quote-unquote, crack the code, if you will, when there simply isn't one to be cracked. You cannot cheat baseball, and that is precisely what they are trying to do. This is why baseball is boring to most fans that turn it on. It has nothing to do with the game being too long, okay? It has everything to do with how boring it is. I'll, I'll use soccer as an example. Soccer is very boring to the average person because there's not enough scoring. Soccer is amazing when there's goals being scored, when you have PK shootouts. That's when soccer relishes and, and, and people love it. But 
for most of the time, 90 minutes or 45-minute halves, there's no scoring. It's boring. It's passes back and forth. It's like watching paint dry. This is what baseball is right now. These players are making millions upon millions of dollars to strike out over 40% of the time so long as they hit a few dingers while they're at it. Okay? For example, right? You have guys... I mean, I can look up and down a, a team's lineup and the guys that are hitting 300, they're anomalies. There's maybe 20 to 23, 24 of them in baseball and that's it. You look up and down, say the Yankees lineup, you have guys consistently 215, 226, 240, 230. DJ LeMahieu, one of the better hitters in baseball, is having a down year this year. He's not even hitting 270. Brett Gardner just got his average above 200. You have uh, Joey Gallo, who I'm about to pick on. He's batting right around 210, 215. I mean, I can't imagine how somebody like Tony Gwynn feels about the game today. He is undoubtedly rolling over in his grave as we speak. Why? Because the most Tony Gwynn ever struck out in a season was 40 times, 4-0. Can you even imagine that in today's day and age? Absolutely not. So let's look, let's pick on a guy like Joey Gallo who just got to the Yankees. Joey Gallo has 26 home runs this season, right? He's played in 14 games for the Yankees. 25 of those home runs came with the Rangers. One of those home runs was with the Yankees, what, a week, week and a half ago? And that was a very big home run. It was a three-run homer, I believe, in the bottom of the seventh inning. It was a porch job. He hit it a mile high, and it gave the Yankees the ultimate lead, and they went on to win that game. It was a big home run. But Joey Gallo has just one home run in 14 games with the Yankees and is striking out in over 41% of his plate appearances. I don't know exactly how many hits total he has since he's been here, but it's not that many. I know he has a couple of doubles, and that's about it, and that one home run. He has struck out in 14 games with the Yankees over 41% of the time. That equates to 23 strikeouts in 14 games. Okay, to put that into perspective for a second, let's talk about Tony Gwynn. Tony Gwynn once struck out 23 times in the 1990 season with the San Diego Padres in 141 games. This is what's wrong with baseball. Yes, Tony Gwynn, one of the best hitters of all time, but he only struck out 23 times in 141 games for a reason. Okay. It used to be embarrassing for a guy to strike out 200 times in a season. Now we have guys doing that in half a season. The, the game is broken. You have launch angle. All they ca all anybody cares about is hitting home runs. You know, get on base and hit the three-run shot. Don't play small ball. Try to bunt a runner over and, and try to score on, on a, a base hit. No, we, we need to hit, hit home runs to win games. And that is why, sure, the Yankees can hit home runs and break records in the regular season. But then when they get to the postseason... They don't see those same pitches. They don't see those fastballs down the plate. They see a lot of sliders in the dirt. 
and they can't hit those because they're looking fastball. They're looking for one thing. They're not looking to shorten up with two strikes and go the other way. They're looking to hit a mammoth home run, and that only gets you so far, okay? And it's actually very surprising um, that the Yankees are sort of almost going backwards in, in that sense. Uh, Pre-All-Star game, the Yankees had, I think, 20 stolen bases, as of last week, they had they were up to 19, and now they're at like 22, maybe 23 stolen bases. This is something the Yankees have been doing a phenomenal job of. They lead Major League Baseball in stolen bases since the All-Star break as of last week. I, I'm pretty sure they still hold that distinction since they have a few more of them. They've been a little bit more fun to watch. Granted, a lot of these games have been low scoring, one or two run games here and there, but they're doing the little things. You had, I saw Joey Gallo do it not too long ago. They had the shift on. And what did Joey Gallo do? Nobody's at third base. He simply put down the bunt. Perfect. And then guess what? Tyler Wade did the same thing in yesterday's game. That is what I'm talking about, people. I don't want to see home runs or bust. I want to see the little things. I want to see guys stealing bases. I want to see hit and runs. I want to see, you know, sack bunts and bunting for hits. That's what made baseball exciting and contact hitting. I don't necessarily need to see a home run every time. That's the problem with baseball. And Rob Manfred is trying to put lipstick on a pig yesterday, throw in those juiced up balls, see eight home runs and a storybook ending. And oh my God, you can't script it any better, except he did script it because he used juiced balls. I will bet my, I will bet my life on it. And he has the average person tuning into that game and saying, oh my God, this is awesome. Wow. Why is everyone, you know, shitting on baseball and saying it's so boring. I just watched this game and it was an 8-7 final and it was ex exhilarating and it was a ninth inning to, to remember for a lifetime. Yeah, well, now you know. Listen to this podcast and I will dish on all things. I don't hold back. I tell it how it is and that is the truth and that's why I've been clamoring since pretty much day one for Rob Manfred's head on the chopping block. He needs to go. He is a bad commissioner in, for this sport. He doesn't know how to market his stars. Uh, he doesn't know how, how, how to improve the game. They try improving the game by making it worse, by putting runners on second base to start extra innings, by, by having seven inning double headers. It, it's a joke. The game is an absolute atrocity and it is a joke and old school ball players like my I, I call I have to call myself an old school baseball guy I'm 29 years old and I'm an old school baseball guy can you imagine that those words coming out of my mouth 29 years old and I'm labeled as an old school baseball guy because to hell with analytics to hell with these shifts to hell with home run or nothing I want to see baseball back in its heyday. I want to see guys that can consistently hit for contact and not strike out, you know, two and three out of every four plate appearances. It's an absolute joke. But that's the end of the rant. Let's move on. Okay. I don't think this is a segment on the show, but I'm making it one for this moment in time. This is my bonehead of the week. And it goes to none other than the man himself, Dennis Schroeder, NBA player. 
Why is he my bonehead of the week? Well, Dennis Schroeder back in March turned down a four-year, $84 million deal to re-sign with the Lakers. He tested the market in free agency, got passed up time and time again, and had to settle on signing a one-year, $5.9 million deal with the Boston Celtics. Oh my God. What in the hell was he thinking? I have no idea, but Shannon Sharp said it best. He overplayed Skip. He overplayed the market and he overplayed his ability. One or two people need to go. Either he needs to fire his agent or he needs to fire himself, but somebody's got to go. There you have it. Somebody has to go. How does this happen? I hope this guy isn't going to Vegas anytime soon because he gambled on himself and he lost. And as Shannon Sharp goes on to say, that clip is like three minutes long, so I'm not going to play the whole thing, but he will never recoup this money. He will not recoup it. And he equated this to um, Nerland's Noel with the Mavericks. He could have re-signed, I think, there for like four years, 70 million. He bet on himself and he lost out. And he never got that money back and he fired his agent and he hired Rich Paul and went from there. But somebody's got to go because if that was all Dennis Schroeder, then my goodness. But he's right. He's never going to get that money back. I don't know. And, and that's the other thing with sports. Tomorrow is never always is never guaranteed. They played a really good segment before the Field of Dreams game yesterday about Jeff Bannister. So Jeff Bannister, if you do not know, he's a former Major League Baseball uh, player. He's a former manager of the year with the Texas Rangers in 2015. And the story goes, Jeff Bannister, when he was a kid in, I think, high school, maybe he had an ankle injury or something to that effect, found out he had bone cancer. They said, we've got to amputate your foot. He said, over my dead body, you're amputating that foot. He said, I have aspirations to play major league baseball, to play in the big leagues. That's my dream. Okay. So they did not amputate. It took them seven surgeries to, I guess, remove the cancer and to heal him. So seven years later, whatever it is, not, well, not seven years later, but a couple years later, he's in college, at, playing at a junior college. He's a catcher. Back then, obviously, you can collide with the catcher at home plate. That's another thing that they got rid of in baseball. No more collisions at home plate. It's a safety thing, whatever. Um, collision at home plate. He breaks three vertebrae in his back, is put in a, in a hospital bed, and paralyzed for a week straight before he starts to get movement in his lower extremities. Okay. Fast forward, Jeff Bannister is a 23rd round pick by the Pittsburgh Pirates, I believe. He grinds, he works. I don't know how many years it takes, but finally he gets that call. The call of a lifetime. You're going to the bigs. He joins the Pirates. He gets his first major league at bat. And as he, he recalls it, he was trembling up there in the box. He said they could have thrown anything and he would have they could have thrown the rosin bag and he would have swung at it well he gets a fastball pitch down the middle he swings at it he hits a ground ball in the hole shortstop fields it backhands it and he hustles down to first and beats it out that's another thing hustle players these days do not hustle smoltz made a good point um i forget what inning it was maybe the eighth or seventh inning john carlos stan hit a dribbler a slow roller to shortstop 
uh, Stanton doesn't beat it out. Smoltz says earlier in his career, he would have beat that out. Well, what the hell? Why don't you try to beat it out now? Because we don't want you to get hurt. So he's told, don't run hard so you don't get hurt. It's a joke. Players get hurt more than ever, and they do more to ensure they don't get hurt than ever. So why do they get hurt more than ever? Because they don't play as much, and they're weak. So anyway, Bannister gets his gets a hit. Infield single. Greatest moment ever, right? To get a hit in your first ever major league at bat. Well, a few days go by. And Jeff Bannister is sent back, sent back down to the minor leagues, and he never makes it back up to the big leagues again. He had one opportunity, one chance, and that was it. And he said, you know, early on, he, reg- you know, he had regrets and he wished, you know, that he got more of an opportunity, but now he doesn't. And Jeff Bannister didn't let that hold him back. He wanted to get into coaching. He worked his way up through the minor league ranks and became the Texas Rangers manager for four seasons where he was 2015 manager of the year. Just an unbelievable story and it proves and it shows perseverance and it is awesome. And that's what you've got to take away and that's that's why Every day is not, you know, tomorrow is never guaranteed. Dennis Schroeder made a mistake. He thought tomorrow was guaranteed. He saw these guys getting these crazy contracts and he thought he had a chance to get it. And the truth is he played himself because he had a season. His best season was in a couple years back in OKC when he balled out. Okay. And that's when the Lakers signed him. Well, he averages about 13 a game, maybe um, 33% from three, 42% from the field. Those are his averages, and he hit those averages. And the Lakers still wanted to pay him more because they liked him, and he turned it down. And now he has to sign with the Celtics, and guess what? The Celtics have an established young core, okay? Jason Tatum is one of those guys and you have a guy in Dennis Schroeder who's going to come in and I don't quite necessarily think he's going to start. Um, and that, that could be a problem um, because I don't like, like Shannon Sharp said, that's the problem because you don't, there's, there's no real foreseeable future with him to, to make this money back. I mean, he is literally going to possibly, they want him, the rumor is that the Celtics want Dennis Schroeder to play behind Marcus Smart. Um, I mean, they've got Peyton Pritchard there as well, although I don't know, you know, if he's going to establish himself over a guy like Dennis Schroeder, but, you know, you have Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. This is their team. So where does Dennis Schroeder fit in? I don't know that he does. So he just lost out on a whole lot of money. So shame on you, Dennis Schroeder. Shame on you. Okay, next up, um, I want to talk real quick about Chris Davis of the Baltimore Orioles. I don't think he's played, if at all, this season. Um, had season-ending hip surgery. He has officially announced his retirement. Um, Chris Davis, in 13 seasons in the big leagues, he hit 295 home runs, and he also completed one of the greatest robberies in sports history. What do I mean by that? Well, he had a historic, and I mean historic, 2013 season. 
becoming one of only two players in the history of baseball, Babe Ruth the other. So anytime you're in the same conversation as Babe Ruth, you know you did something right. Well, his historic season in 2013, in which he hit 53 home runs, 42 doubles, and drove in 130 RBIs, like I said, something only Babe Ruth ever did. Okay, that's an elite club. He then turned that season into a massive seven-year, $161 million contract in 2016. So that was 2013. He had a couple more good seasons after that, and then he turned it into a massive seven-year, $161 million contract in 2016, never living up to the hype. It went completely downhill from there. He hit no more than 26 home runs, which you might think, wow, 26 home runs, that's pretty good. Well, that was in 2017. After 2017 and 2018, 19, and 20, I don't think he hit more than like 15 home runs, and that might be stretching it. Um, and from 2017 to 2020, he never batted above a buck 79. Never even hit the Mendoza line, okay? And he set a Major League Baseball record as if it could get any worse for the longest hitless streak in history. An O for 54 slump that lasted from September of 2018 through April of 2019. There's actually um, a really good story about that slump and how a kid from Massachusetts sent him a letter. It, it's um, on Twitter if you could find it. It's like five minutes long. They interviewed the kid. He sent him a letter and he said, you know, like there's more to life than baseball and, you know, you're a good person, and yada, yada, yada. And after that, the, he received that letter and read it. Um, he started to get some hits that day. So pretty cool. But yeah, Chris Davis... Got a feel for the guy because um, he's probably one of the most hated guys in um, Baltimore sports history for those, you know, last few years of that contract because it was a massive one and he did not ever live up to the hype. Also in retirement, I saw that Dion Lewis, after 10 years in the NFL, he is hanging up the cleats and calling it quits, which is a little surprising because Adam Schefter tweeted that as of this week, he has had some people, um, you know, some teams that are biting and wanting to sign him. But, um, you know, some people, when they feel the time is right, they decide to to hang it up and, and, and call it quits. Um, he had a couple good seasons with the Browns, with the Patriots. And, uh, yeah, I always liked Deion Lewis. Okay, uh, we have the Little League World Series gearing up to start next Thursday. You can find most regionals airing on ESPN, possibly ESPN Plus, as the field is finalized tomorrow. All the regionals will be finalized tomorrow with the championship games of those regionals. Unfortunately, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, there will be no international field this year, so it's just going to contain teams from the U.S. And then the kids from Toms River, New Jersey, they will be battling it out with Delaware tonight at 7 in an elimination game with the hopes of facing Pennsylvania tomorrow in the regional final. New Jersey did beat Delaware 3-0 last weekend, so it is a familiar opponent. Hopefully they can get the job done. And I believe Todd Frazier, the great Tom's River product himself, former major leaguer, uh, silver medalist in, in the Olympics, um, his nephew, I believe, is one of the stars on this team. So could you imagine if they made it all the way and, and won it just as he did? 
Um, so that would be pretty cool. So I'll be looking forward to watching them tonight at seven. And then, like I said, the Little League World Series gears up to start next Thursday. Um, and then we've got preseason games in the NFL. There's a couple games on tonight. And then you've also, there's games um, all tomorrow. And that would be week one. And of course, this year they've shortened the preseason to three games and added an extra um, week to the regular season. And I will announce now, um, although it's always possible he flakes on me next week, but next week I might, um, I should have, he, he did confirm that he would do it next week. Um, my good buddy, Nick on the show, he's been on two or three other times as well to talk all football. We'll give sort of, um, you know, our outlook for the season, what we think is going to happen. Maybe we'll talk week one spreads, get into some stuff like that. Um, so hopefully I can have him on next week to talk football. We're pretty much at the end. And the last segment, as always, on this date in sports, on this date in 2016, Yankees rookies Tyler Austin and Aaron Judge became the first two teammates to hit their first career home run in their first at-bat in the same game. There's that jump right there, those two flags. The 2-2, driven to right field and deep. Going back is Matuk on the track at the wall. Nice. Welcome <laughs> to the big leagues. See ya. He'll never forget that. What an induction. First home run off Joey J with the Cincinnati Reds in Cincinnati. Judge hits one to center field and deep. Going back, Kiermaier, turning, looking. See ya. A monster home run. Back-to-back -back home run. So yeah, there you have it. That's going to wrap this one up. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Um, I brought you, I brought you a lot and I got it done in a condensed hour and 13 minutes. So, um, I'm proud of that. And after being off last week, I hope you guys, um, can enjoy this episode. If you like the podcast, consider, uh, leaving a comment about the show. You can hit me up in my DMS as some of you always do. And on either Instagram, excuse me, Instagram or Twitter. I'm pretty active on there and I, um, I'm not a big personality, so I don't get many, you know, messages that I overlook them. Sometimes it takes me a couple days to see your messages cause I'm not on there like all the time, all the time, like some people. But if you like the podcast, like subscribe to the show. So you turn that notification bell on. So you get notified when a new episode drops as this one will be, you know, hitting shelves as you, as you will, um, in about, I don't know, 30 minutes or so once I upload it. So, um, yeah, I hope you guys enjoy. I will be back. Like I said, next week, hopefully with Nick as my, uh, guest for the, for the week. Um, I'm looking forward to the little league world series, looking forward to watching some of that tonight. And I'm looking forward to the jets and giants preseason opener tomorrow. So, Thanks for listening, guys. That's going to do it for episode 144 of This Week in Sports. I'm the Pody, signing out. I'll see everybody next week. Enjoy the rest of your weekend.